Uh, can you think of in a time uh, maybe where you've gotten a really great gift for someone uh, and you're really excited to give it to them? You know what I'm talking about? Like, uh, I probably think of it most of the times like Christmas morning, like your kids or different gifts that you wanted to get them or that kind of thing. Or maybe you can think of a different instance. I was thinking of one uh, just this week. I think it was two years ago. It was uh, Quinn's birthday. He's my youngest. Um, we had, he had been asking for a solid year for a dirt bike. Uh, that was all he wanted. That's all he talked about. That's all he said. And uh, finally, we decided that that's what he was going to get for his birthday and uh, Asher and Jed, his older brothers, knew. Uh, he did not know. And so we said, under the pretense of we're going to, like, go out to eat or something, we all got in the car together and went to this little shop over in Cumming that sells dirt bikes. And Quinn had no idea. But I remember being so excited. I remember the older boys being really excited. Quinn didn't know, but we all knew. And it was like, this is where we're going, and this is what's going to happen, and this is going to be really great. And then, of course, when we got there, Quinn was just like, This is the greatest day ever. Like he got so excited. And there's something fun about knowing that and sharing that with somebody else, right? To tell them or or get to show them this thing and you know what's coming. And I was thinking about just the emotions of that at different times, whether it's like at Christmas or with your kids or giving a good gift or, or, or maybe it's just, uh, caring for somebody well or helping alleviate their suffering and you know that you get an opportunity to do that, whatever it may be. The emotions that kind of go with that, the excitement of getting to do that for somebody else. And I I was thinking and reflecting on that this morning as we get to this passage in Matthew chapter 17, as Jesus takes Peter and James and John and he says, go with me and we're going to go up this mountain together. And he kind of has this this uh, surprise for them, this thing that's about to unfold in front of them that they don't know, but Jesus knows. And I was just thinking like that we say and we believe and we confess that Jesus is fully God and that he's fully man. And he goes through the emotions of what we feel and the things we feel. And I think as they walking up that mountain was Jesus like, oh, I can't wait for them to see this. Like, was he thinking some of those things? Like when we give a good gift that he knew what was about to unfold, what he's about to show Peter, James and John and what they're going to be wrestling and what they're going to be seeing and what's going to be revealed to them and how exciting that is. And so this morning, we're going to look at this, what we often refer to as the transfiguration as Jesus takes Peter and James and John up this mountain and they see Jesus in his glory. And I want us to look at this passage this morning and think about what it was he was teaching them what he was after and the ways he was loving them and what he was pointing them to here, kind of in the the big picture of everything that's been happening with Jesus and what he's doing. And so we're going to look at this this story here in Matthew chapter 17. And there's three things that I really want you to see here of what Jesus is doing. First, he's showing them that he's Lord over the past. He is the Lord of all fulfillment. And so that's the first thing. Second thing, that he is the Lord over the future. And when you see those two, it brings us to the third thing, that you can trust him with the present. He's the Lord over the past, he's the Lord over the future, and you can trust him with, his, with our presence, our, our present circumstances. And so let's think about that together. Uh, we're in this uh, series where we've been walking through Jesus' life. We've been looking at where he goes and what he does. We're in the third year of his ministry now where there's heavy, heavy opposition to him. The religious leaders are frustrated and after him and kind of attacking him in different times. But when we get to this passage, and and this is true of any passage that we look at together, context is important. It's important what comes right before it and what's happening and what's being unfolded here and what it's teaching us. And so not just the context of 
day to day of Jesus's life and his disciples. That's true. That's part of the context, but also even the biblical writers inspired by God in the way that they have placed these stories together and what they tell us and what follows what. And so if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about uh, this opposition and the way that Jesus is going through it. And so we saw in Matthew chapter 16, there was this heavy opposition against Jesus. And then at the end of Matthew chapter 16, Peter makes this bold and wonderful confession that Jesus is the Messiah. Like Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says in verse 16 of chapter 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, because God has revealed this to you. Right? And so there's this great big confession. And he's telling Peter, I'm going to do wonderful things through you and I'm going to build my church and I'm going to do this. But then right after that, we looked at how Jesus starts to tell them that he's going to die. He starts to foretell, it says in verse 21, from this time of chapter 16, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so we looked at how Peter says, that's not going to happen. Peter immediately steps in and rebukes Jesus and says, it's not going to happen like that. And the problem that they're dealing with, what Jesus's disciples are wrestling with is he's just told them they confessed he's the messiah and he says yes you're right i am the messiah and god has revealed this to you but then he turns around and tells them he's going to die and now they have these two things in their mind that don't go together right they have messiah who's going to be conquering king who's going to overthrow governments who's going to set up his kingdom here and now and jesus said i'm going to die and they don't compute And in fact, as you read through the rest of the Gospels in this third year, Jesus is going to say this over and over. And most times it just goes right over their head. They don't even acknowledge it. And when they do, it's like with Peter here when he goes, that won't happen. It's not going to be like that. And so there's this competing thing that's going on here. And so that's the context with which he invites Peter and James and John to come away with him on this mountain. And so he takes them up. It says here in verse one, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and they led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, before I get to the what that tells us about the past and how Jesus is over all the past, there's an important point here about discipleship in this. Something we talk about here a lot. We say all the time at our church that our our main focus is to make disciples who make disciples. We think that's the mission that Jesus has given us to grow in obedience to Jesus in every area of our life. And one of the things that we say associated with that is going into deeper relationships with people, having people in our lives that know us and know what's going on and are praying for us and we're accountable to each other and we confess our sin and we encourage one another. And the reason that we point to these things is because this is the way Jesus made disciples. Right here, you see him taking the three Peter, James, and John, and getting away with just the three of them. If you read closely through the Gospels, Jesus does this several times. He does this often. He has loads of disciples, people following him everywhere he goes. Uh, At one point, he sends out 72 two by two. He then has the 12 that he's called to himself that's kind of in this inner circle. But then even out of that, he'll step aside with the three, Peter, James, and John. Uh, Mark chapter five, we looked at this last year. A guy named Jairus comes up to Jesus. He says, my daughter's really sick. She's at the point of the death. Come, come quick. And Jesus starts going to the guy's house. And on the way, on the way there, the daughter dies. You know, the story, 
He gets to the house and they say, she's dead. And he, he takes everybody out. He says, everybody leave except the parents and Peter and James and John. And he brings them in. And he walks over and he takes that little girl who's passed away, who is now dead, and he takes her by the hand and he says, little girl, arise, and she gets up. And he just allows Peter, James, and John to see this. And he does this over and over. And so what you see is Jesus loving them well and modeling this idea of going deeper with fewer, of sharing his life. And I want you to think just how that's very practical. We're we're finite in the time that we have and the way we spend it and the way we do those things and having deeper relationships. You can't have the same depth with every single person in your life. And so making a concerted effort as Jesus does here of going deeper with fewer. And he does that and he's preparing them. He's preparing them to go make disciples. He's pouring into them in these ways. And so you see Jesus invite them in to kind of go into this deeper with fewer here. Now, how does that pertain to us? We'll get to what he does with them in just a second. But how does that pertain to us with what Jesus is doing? If that's the way he made disciples. He goes deeper with fewer. He's showing them in certain episodes that we see certain scenes that unfold in the Gospels where he's showing them some incredible things that he's not showing anybody else. What does that mean for us in discipleship? And I think the important thing that you need to consider is that's the way Jesus makes disciples. And so we should be looking to Jesus for how we make disciples. But I would say to you that we see more fully what God is like when we enter into those relationships with one another. I want you to think about how that works. Right? When you go to deeper relationships with a smaller group of people, what happens? Those that you are closest to, you start to share your hurts and your needs and your struggles and the things that are going on in your life. You invite them in in a a level that you don't with everyone else. And if we're brothers and sisters in Christ and we're doing that together and we're sharing those things and then we're beginning to pray for one another. We're confessing to one another all the things that scripture tells us to do. We're encouraging one another in those and you're sharing your deepest desires of your heart. And then we're praying for those things and then we start to see them happen. And we see God changing us and growing us in that. And that's his design for discipleship. And so what we see Jesus doing here with Peter, James, and John, we should be being called into the same, right? That's what discipleship looks like, deeper with fewer. And so I just invite you to just consider, before we even look at what he does with them here, that this is Jesus' method of discipleship. He's doing this systematically, regularly, thoughtfully, that we too should be called into deeper relationships where we're encouraging one another and speaking the truth to each other. We need that. We desperately need that. We're made for relationship. But what does he do here? What does he teach them? What is he showing us here? And so the first thing I want us to consider is he's showing them that he's Lord over the past, that he is the fulfillment of all things. And so pick up there in verse two. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so I'm going to stop there for just a second. 
There's a whole lot of things going on here. There's a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of stuff happening in this short uh, few verses of what God is doing and what he's saying and what he's showing them. Some of these things that the disciples wouldn't have fully understood, but a lot of it they would have. A lot of the symbolism and what's happening right in front of them would have brought to mind a whole bunch of different things that God's showing them. That Jesus is teaching them as he's with them there. The first thing is you see him kind of changing visibly, right? In verse 2 it says he was transfigured before them and his face started to shine and his clothes became white. That word for transfigured is the word we get metamorphosis from. He's visibly changing in front of them and they're seeing it happen. And as he's changing, what's happening here is his innermost nature is now becoming outwardly visible. They're seeing it right in front of them. Being overwhelmed with this glorious image of who Jesus is. And I see that and I read that and I have that thought in my mind. And all of a sudden all these passages come to mind. I was thinking about in in John's gospel. In John chapter 1, it says, The true light which gives light to everyone has come into the world. And there he is, right? The light that is shining in the darkness, that Jesus is the true light, right? That he is by which we see. And I mean that in a very literal sense. You have sight because Jesus says so. Literal sight. You have spiritual sight because Jesus opened your eyes to see. But he is the light by which we see all things. And now they're kind of seeing this in a visual representation. Uh, made me immediately go to Revelation chapter 21 is God gives John a vision of the new heavens and the new earth. You know, it says there in, in the end of Revelation chapter 21, he said, I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb, right? The Lamb is Jesus. And it says the light is Jesus. And so these images that we end up seeing kind of unfolded through Scripture, here's Jesus and they're seeing this right in front of them. But what is he teaching them? What's going on here? Verse 3, it says Moses and Elijah were there. And they're talking with Jesus. And all of a sudden Peter sees this and he's really excited. Typical Peter gets real pumped. So good we're here. I'll make some tents for you guys. That's what Peter says. It's kind of funny if you read in Mark chapter 9 and in Luke chapter 9, it's the same story, right? Synoptic Gospels, oftentimes, they all three tell the same stories. Mark and Luke both tell it. They give us a little bit of detail that Matthew doesn't. But it's kind of funny in Mark and in Luke when you read, it basically says Peter starts talking about making shelters because he doesn't know what to do. He's really excited and he's afraid and he sees this as important, so he just starts blurting stuff out. That's really what they say. It's just typical Peter. You see him do this all the time. When he's not sure, he just jumps ahead and starts talking. I I actually almost chuckled when I was reading it just now. It says in verse 5, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Right? God's presence descends and God speaks and Peter's still talking. I'm going to build some shelters and I'm going to do some things. And it's like, okay, Peter, enough. Peter's excited. He's pumped. He's like, Moses and Elijah are here. But what was God showing them? What's he revealing to them with them being there? He's obviously, Peter says, this is amazing. It's incredible that we get to be here and see this. But what was God teaching and showing them? And I think one of the things he's saying is Moses and Elijah is an image of the law and the prophets. 
that they're representative of all the law and the prophets. And they are there standing there talking with Jesus. And it's a pretty incredible picture when you start to think about that. But then also you start to think of all the imagery of what's happening. This cloud descends and God's voice speaks. They hear it visibly speaking. I think there's a bunch of things happening there. It harkens back to when God's presence comes down on Mount Sinai and he first gives the law to Moses. It's kind of pointing to all these things. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, if you know the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is essentially um, some speeches or sermons of Moses right before they go into the promised land. And he's summarizing everything that God did. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses tells that there's going to be one that comes like him after him, a prophet after him that you need to listen to. And I think it's pretty cool when you start to see this picture and the crowd, the cloud comes down and Moses is standing there and God's voice speaks and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Right. All these connections are being made. And I want you just to think about the way that God is working here. He's showing them. He's pulling all these strands and all these prophecies and all these things from the Old Testament. And he's pulling them together right in front of Peter and James and John. Right. They're struggling. They believe he's the Messiah, but they're still struggling with how exactly does this work? And some of the things you're telling us don't seem to line up with the way that we think it should go. And he's pulling and he's showing how all of the past points to Jesus, that God is sovereign over all of it. And so you have Moses and Elijah, you get to verse 10 as they're coming down and they ask Jesus, they go, you know, well, what about Elijah? They say in verse 10, you see it there, it says, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And there was this understanding based on a prophecy in Malachi chapter four, that Elijah would come and set the way for Jesus, for the Messiah. And they were assuming he would come first. And now they see Elijah on the mountain, but Jesus is already here and he's in the middle of his ministry. And they're going, well, how does that work? And they believe this because it talks about Elijah coming in Malachi chapter four. If you know the story of Elijah, prophet in the Old Testament, you can go back and read about him in first Kings. At the end of his life, God takes him up to heaven in a whirlwind. He's gone. He's just he's there. And then God comes and takes him and he takes him up. And so the thought was he's going to come back. He's going to come back because God took him up and he's going to prepare the way. And that's part of the re ways we'll know that the Messiah is now coming. And so they ask him. It's a good question if you think about it. They're trying to hold in their mind what they believe about the Messiah and what's now happening in front of them. And so they say, well, what about Elijah? And how does that work? And Jesus says in verse 12, he says, but I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they please. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then it says the disciples understood he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. And so he's correcting some of those things that they had wrong with prophecies in the way. And he's pulling all these strands together and he's showing them how he's the fulfillment of all of it, that he's the Lord over the past. And so he's bringing all of this together. And so that's the first thing I think he's he's loving them so well. He's teaching them. He's showing them. He's meeting them at their point of need and where they're struggling. And so the first thing there is he's showing them how all these strands come together in him from the past. But then the next thing I want you to consider is what he shows them about the future. Right? Normally we say past, present and future, but we're going to go past and then future. 
And I'm going to tell you why. Because if you understand the way God holds the past and how all of it leads us to Jesus, and then you see the glory that is to come because of what Jesus has done, you can face anything in the present. When you know that he's Lord over both, what you deal with right now, you know that your future is secure and you know he's Lord over the past. And so what does he say here about the future? What is he showing them in this? And so look at verse 2 and 3 again. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Right? And so there's this glimpse that he's giving them of his glory, and he's showing them this vision. If you read in Mark's gospel, and then you read in Luke's gospel, you take all three together. Mark tells you that they went up on the mountain and they fell asleep. They were praying and they fell asleep, which is kind of funny if you think about it. They do this a few times with Jesus as they're praying with him. But Mark tells you they fell asleep and when they woke up, they saw this vision. And then if you read in Luke's gospel, he adds one little detail that Matthew doesn't have. And it would come right after verse 3, right? He appeared to them and Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus. Luke tells us what they were talking about. It's actually in Luke chapter 9 and verse 31. He spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So they come to, they see this vision. Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah, and they're talking about Jesus' death and resurrection that's going to be coming in Jerusalem. I want you to think about what he's showing them here, what he's teaching them. What they're struggling with in their minds of how Jesus can be the Messiah and yet he's telling them he's going to die and be raised again. And they cannot hold those things. And he gives them this glimpse of his glory and they see Moses and Elijah and they're talking about the plan that has always been that Jesus is going to depart in Jerusalem and what this looks like. And he's pulling the strands together of how all of the future points to what Jesus is going to do. How beautiful that is in the way that he's loving them. And I think he gives them this glimpse of the resurrection. They know virtually nothing in the Old Testament. There's very little about the resurrection. But there is a passage that's well known, even at this time, that they would have known that talks about it. It's in Daniel chapter 12. And it says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That was kind of their conception of resurrection. And here Jesus begins to shine in this beautiful way. And here he's standing there with Elijah and Moses and they're talking about what's to come. And he's showing them, he's giving them this glimpse of what the future holds. And it makes me think of even him having Moses and Elijah there and the image that's being presented before them. It makes me think of uh, a little later in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus has a discussion with the Sadducees. Sadducees were some of the religious leaders of the day that did not believe in resurrection. In Matthew 22, you've probably heard this story before, but they come to Jesus and they, they kind of come up with a somewhat ridiculous scenario to try to catch him. That there is no resurrection. They go, well, what if there's a lady who's widowed six times, seven times, and she keeps getting remarried, right? She gets married again and again and again and again. She ends up with seven different husbands. 
whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And it's like, aha, we gotcha, right? And that's what they say to him. And you know what Jesus says to him? He says, you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. And he, he corrects them. But then he gets to the resurrection part and he says this. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. What does he mean there? They come to him and they're testing him. Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible. And they go, there's no resurrection. And here we're going to give you this scenario and we're going to prove it to you. And what he does is he quotes to him. He quotes scripture back to him of when God speaks to Moses. Right? God comes to him and he says, well, who do I say sent me? And you say, I am sent you. And he talks about how he's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And I want you to think really clearly what he's saying here. It's so subtle, but it's genius what Jesus says. He says, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. At that point, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are long dead. And he doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He's proving to them from the scriptures that there's resurrection. And now here Moses and Elijah are standing with them and they're starting to take on this, this glowing, beautiful picture of what our future looks like in Jesus in glorified bodies and what it's coming and what it looks like. And he's showing them. He's showing Peter and James and John. He's pulling the threads together of this is the glorious future to come. And you're thinking that this can't work with me being the Messiah because I told you I'm going to die. And he's going, no, 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 it's way bigger than you think it is. I'm doing something that you can't quite fathom yet. Even let, I mean, think of how cool it is that he lets them see him talking with Moses and Elijah about how he's going to die. Right? They're, they're being privy to the, the foundations of what God's doing throughout time. And he's showing them what the future is. And he's loving them so well. And he's caring for them in the middle of it. And so he's showing them this glorious future that they have. And in so doing, when you see that, when you see that all of what God was doing from past, eternity past has been leading to Jesus, you then start to see the glorious future that we have in him. Then it starts to make sense of where they are right here and now. It makes sense of our present. And so look at what happens here. God speaks out of the cloud, verse 5. Peter's still speaking, and behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces, and they were terrified. Again, the symbolism's really rich. There's a whole lot of things going on here. Same thing happened in Exodus. Right? God calls Moses. He leads the people out of Egypt, the Israelites go out. They come out around Mount Sinai and he says, get everybody ready. And the cloud descends and God speaks. And everybody's scared to death. Right? That's what it says. They even say to Moses, please ask God to not speak to us that way again because it scared us to death and we can't take it. That's really kind of what they say. It's too much. And so here the cloud descends and God speaks. And he tells us, he says, the words come out. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And again, they fall on their faces in fear. 
which makes sense to me. You hear the voice of God and he comes down and he falls on your face. But I want you to think about everything that Jesus is showing them about the past and the future and what it means about the present. Our present and where we are today and everything that God's doing. And I get chills when I read verse 7 and 8. But Jesus came and he touched them and he said, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And he was standing there and he said, you don't have anything to be afraid of. Right? I, I see this love of Jesus that he's got these disciples that he's pouring into. And they can't quite understand how he's the Messiah, but he's going to die. And in his great love and care, he takes them onto this mountain and he begins to unfold this vision for them. And show them a deeper picture of who he is and what he's doing. And at the end of that, when he comes and they say, they look up and there's no one else there but Jesus. And he's going, you don't have anything to be afraid of. Do you see that I'm the plan that's always been? This is the way God was always working. And do you see the glorious future that is to come? And it all holds together in Jesus and his death and his resurrection. Now, I'm going to tell you, I don't think they see that yet. It didn't just all click and they went, oh, he's got to die and that makes sense and whatever. But God in his great love and care for them begins to show them that. And he's meeting them right where they are. I've read this story so many times. It's a pretty famous story, the transfiguration. And God's so great. I had never seen it like that until this week. Like what I mean is this, that how much Jesus loved them. That he took them up there to show them all of this. To prepare them. Right? He tells them, don't tell anybody else until after I've died in the resurrection. Nobody's going to quite understand this. They didn't even fully understand it. But how this incredible moment in their life helped them when that came. And that he loves us in those ways. And that's true for us today. God is the God that is Lord over all, over the past and our future. And when we see those things together, we can hold right in the middle of where we are and trust him, no matter what that is. And so I'll just share with you, I'll, I'll end here. I have been listening <laughs> to this song all week, and it's always been one of my favorites for a long time. And after reading that in God's care and love for his disciples, it was like, I see it in a new way. And last night I, I finished, I walk, I've told you this before, I go walk through my neighborhood, I go over my sermon, and I got done, and then I was listening to the song as I was finishing. It's a song by Sufjan Stevens, if you don't know who he is. He's a singer, songwriter, guy that's critically acclaimed. He's kind of strange and unique and wonderful at the same time, but he's a believer. And he wrote a song called The Transfiguration. And all it is is him on a banjo singing what happens. Jesus and his disciples went up on the mountainside to pray and he starts to play. But it, it grows and it gets bigger. And by the end of the song, he's singing, lost in a cloud of voice. Have no fear. We draw near. Son of man, turn your ear. Lamb of God, we draw near. Lost in a cloud, a sign. Son of man, son of God. And he sings it over and over. And I was walking down the street going... It is so amazing that we worship a God that loves us so much. His care of taking them to this place and revealing his glory to them, of preparing them, 
of getting them ready, of then recording this for us. That we see how he is the Lord of all past and all future and where we are right now, we can draw near and there's no fear. He's got over all of it. Oh, that we would see that afresh today, that we'd be overwhelmed with his glory and his love for us. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you for all of these images that you give us. That you came to us to show us the beauty of your glory and who you are and what you're doing. The way that you have unfolded history of all these things pointing to you. That you come and then fulfill it as you lay down your life for us and do for us what we could never do for ourselves. We thank you. We thank you for the glorious hope that we have because of the future that is secure, because of what you've done for us in the past, that wherever we are right now, whatever we're dealing with, whatever the things that are coming in our life, that we can trust you, that you are Lord over the past, that you are Lord of the future, that you are Lord over our present right here and now. We pray that we would just continue to trust you more and more in all things. We pray all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.